0: Get the recorder starting, and, uh, and we're ready. So the subject today is the spirituality of the church. I don't know how familiar people are with that uh, subject, but uh, as a scripture reading, I want to read uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. And Jesus, walking uh, by the sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said, "Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men." They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two older, two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the, their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness. And all kinds of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought him to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan." Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and uh, for the teaching of other men on the subject, not just Daryl Hart, but really the whole weight of the Reformed tradition as as even that hangs on uh, or stands upon the weight of uh, uh, and tradition of others as well. We we thank you for the whole history of the church going back to the apostles and even the teaching of you, Lord Jesus. And we ask you that we might uh, build a collective witness to your name. And we ask this in your name as well. Amen. remember um, we're talking about the church and even though it's a historical study I do want you to have some sense that this this historical tradition didn't come out of nowhere Um, when I preached this passage uh, I think I did it in three sermons I talked about Jesus program for building the kingdom uh, and and two of two of these remain and one of them have ceased has ceased Uh, and so the, the third was miracles which we see here that was peculiar to the foundation of the apostles and the prophets uh, along with Christ Jesus the cornerstone. But that was part of building the church to be sure and bringing the kingdom of God in a remarkable and unmistakable way. But but the two things that we see here which have not ceased is the work of preaching, the preaching of the kingdom and the work of, can anyone guess it? I'd like to see if you guys can guess what I'm about to say sometimes the work of making disciples. So Jesus begins here His work primarily through preaching the kingdom and calling men unto himself. That's how he builds the church. And then he testifies to his authority by performing miracles. But preaching the kingdom and calling men unto himself or making disciples is the work of the church. And that's how the church has been built ever since then. And we see that's how Jesus begins his ministry. Uh, So with that in mind... We have already, from the example of our Lord, uh, a program for the church. Now, the reason I emphasize this is because in the debates in the church today about what is the scope of the church, what is the purpose of the church, what is the mission of the church, so often the church goes well beyond that simple program, and they ask the question, what's the harm? But the question uh, that you you, you ought to ask yourself is uh, whether they're being faithful to the Lord's commission uh, and also, quite frankly, what is the harm? I think that history has proven that when the church goes beyond the scope of those things that it ends in dangerous water. Let me just say for the benefit of those who just arrived that from Matthew 4, the focus of the church going back to Christ's ministry is the preaching of the kingdom and the making of disciples, calling men unto, unto Christ. And so... Today we're going to focus on the mission of the church or the nature of the church and her purpose under the, the rubric of what is called the spirituality of the church. This is something which resembles Luther's two kingdom theology. If you've ever read, it's a 20 page tract. Uh, if, if anything I say today stimulates you uh, intellectually go just find Luther on the two kingdoms to what extent they should be obeyed. Um, and it's a fascinating read. And he really divides the two kingdoms into the spiritual and the temporal. Uh, and and uh, I, you know I even in rereading it recently, I was, I found myself disagreeing with him. He, on, on not on the spiritual, he gets that one right, but on the temporal. He goes to extents that I would not feel comfortable. He did not have her own sense of limited authority in government. He almost had a view of total authority—that they have a total, that the governing authority has a total say in our lives. They govern, govern even he says our bodies, but they cannot govern our souls. And that's where I, I felt you know a line needs to be drawn. No, they don't govern our bodies. Uh, so but the point is, it's a great, it's a great study in these two these two spheres, the church and the state. And the church is a spiritual sphere. That's what we're trying to describe. And that has important implications for how we proceed as a church uh, and what it means to be a church, especially a Presbyterian church. This is an idea which has been dear to Presbyterianism. It is an important idea that has been lost in the 19th and 20th centuries, which has led to the church looking as it does today, the program-driven church, the seeker-sensitive church, and so on. I plan to really dive into that next week. Daryl has three great chapters on that subject: the the seeker-sensitive churches. Uh, but for today, we're just looking at the idea of the spirituality of the church. My first encounter with this idea, uh, I did I did encounter it in Luther. He didn't articulate it as the spirituality of the church, but there was there was a class in seminary called the spirituality of the church that had previously been taught by Daryl Hart, and following him. Uh, um, a pastor named Craig Troxel. And there were about 10 people in the class. It was an elective. It wasn't very popular. And I'd say easily half the class hated it. So there were like just a couple of us that thought, this is it. This is it. Uh, this is what I've been waiting to hear. A whole. I mean, I still have the folder, all the reading that we did. We just read a bunch of articles. It was wonderful. It totally transformed my view of the church. It's what led me coming into the OPC as a, as a freshman in seminary. And I really haven't looked back. I've never wavered on this. And I've always instinctively sensed it as a Christian, but I've never had it articulated so well as it was in that class. Um, And there were men in that class who were now ministers in the OPC. It really was a formative class for us. Um, I developed, after that class, a friendship with Daryl. I've referred to him as a personal friend, but for the next three years of seminary, he and I became close friends, and really it was over this subject, our our shared view and love of this subject. I also read Burkoff. If you've ever read Burkoff's Systematic Theology, that's kind of the standard work. If you ever wanted to read a systematic theology, Banner of Truth is a great edition of Burkoff, and I read it cover to cover uh, several times, actually. I really needed to get my theology in line if I ever wanted to be a minister in the OPC. But he distinguished between the church's institute and the church's organism. It's one of the most helpful distinctions I've ever come across, and it, it really articulates the same point. Uh, The church's institute is the actual church. When we're talking about the church, we're talking about the institution that is a building. It's a spiritual building, but it's a building. Christ is building it. Uh, So don't think institution like, like the Roman Catholic Church or even like a denomination, but think of it as a spiritual institution, a spiritual body, but it has clear boundaries. And the church as an institution is limited by its spiritual nature uh, to a spiritual purpose. It's a a limited authority. Ah, It's it's limited in its scope. But the church's organism, he says, permeates all of society. And so uh, a Christian, this is kind of the most famous example, a Christian might want, for example, like Whitfield, to set up an orphanage in days where there were no... There were no uh, orphanages and, 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 you know, parents died and you couldn't find the relatives and you had all these children that needed to be cared for. Now, that's something a Christian might take up. Christian work as a Christian, but it's important to distinguish that this is not the work of the church. This is not why Christ is set of the church. But that's not to say that it, it is invalid work as Christians. A modern example would be a pregnancy center. It would be extremely uncomfortable if that became a wing of the church. Uh, but, but to say that it is, it's the work of Christians is something that's valid. So I think a way to distinguish that church institute, church is organism, is the difference between my brother and my neighbor. Uh, a church consists of Christians who are brothers, and they're called to look out for one another. Uh, the work of the diaconate has primary reference to the church itself, Christians. But the church is an organism as, as the Christians, let's say, leave on Sundays and, and they go into society on Mondays. They have to deal with not brothers, but neighbors. And they still have a Christian duty to them as well. But when you begin to conflate those two concepts, institute and organism, you end up with a church that's not spiritual, but very worldly. And it's very outward focused as opposed to focused on the worship of God's people and the brotherhood of the saints. So Really, I, I, I look forward to diving into that more next time. Uh, the other, the other um, influence for me on this idea was just my time in the PCUSA. And I was able to see firsthand the disastrous consequences of a church that was engaged in social work. When the church, when pastors become social workers, well, go to the PCUSA. I don't even need to tell you what happens. Uh the church ceases to be the church in any meaningful way. So is the mission of the church to alleviate social and societal needs? This is a question that Jay Gresham Machen asked when he wrote uh, and delivered at a political science conference the responsibility of the church in the New Age. And we have it upstairs, and I like to give that out. What is the mission of the church, which he delivered in the midst of the Great Depression? Again, is the mission of the church to really alleviate societal need Or is it perhaps a spiritual purpose to address men as eternal souls? Now, the relevance of the issue is, uh, or it can be found uh, in the midst of Calvinistic and Reformed theology. Again, Daryl just does such a good job of presenting issues because some of the questions that I had in in rereading this chapter, I realized they're just being answered for me. Uh, So... One of the ways that this this happens, let let us say that, that the the culture warriors in the Christian wing, the evangelical wing, resemble very strongly social justice warriors in the leftist wing. So how did the how did the evangelical right end up with its social justice warriors and why did they so often come from Presbyterian churches? This is a fascinating question. Uh, now, just as soon as you have culture warriors in the church, you've, you've lost this doctrine, the spirituality of the church, okay? Let's be clear about that. But, but the idea of cr- Christ and culture is, is a question that reformed people have been wrestling with going back to Calvin. The question about political activism is a question people, uh, let us be fair, have in every circle. Uh, I remember a long time ago standing right here being asked the question, what what is the role of the church in politics? It's, It's a question that we all have. And seemingly Calvin's emphasis has provided an answer for a lot of people because Calvin stressed, really unlike Luther, going back to his two kingdoms theology, Calvin stressed the importance of glorifying God in all of life. Not just as a soul, but through our bodies. Now, that's a good idea, and we agree with that. Out of that comes the doctrine of the vocation, that the mother glorifies God at home every bit as much as the minister preaching the gospel, every bit as the man, uh, let us say, uh, building a house, laying bricks. All of them alike together are glorifying God. But if you take this idea of, of 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 glorifying God in all of life, you can understand why it becomes the motivation or at least the, the outlet for, for, for the cultural warrior, the, the, the evangelical social justice warrior, or even the evangelical, let us say, social justice warrior of the leftist variety. And, and, and indeed, I think that this perhaps answers my question, which I have been asking for years ever since I went to seminary. I come out of the PCUSA. All, everyone there was a liberal. And that was 20 years ago. I couldn't even imagine what it is now. I come into the OPC and I think, okay, I can get away from the insanity. But that's not what happened. When I was in seminary, I was surrounded by progressives. And I said, what is going on here? And so they've already co-opted and taken over the PCUSA and they're flooding into the PCA. That's already happened. But they're also coming into the OPC, but primarily flooding into the PCA. My question has been, why are progressives drawn to reform churches but but I think I have my answer here. I think Daryl provided it it's because reform theology, unlike other traditions, gives the social justice warrior the categories they need within the church to pursue social change. They will say things like uh that like oh what's the saying there're slogans that they use uh that that uh Every square inch belongs to Christ, that sort of thing. Uh, Changing culture for Christ, that kind of thing. You see, that comes from both directions, left and right. Mark Knoll speaks of, I'm about to blame the Puritans again. I'm sorry, I love the Puritans. Uh, I do. Uh, But Mark Knoll speaks of the Reformed outlook, going back to the Puritans, as having, quote, assumed... The necessity of moving directly from passion for God in the Bible to passion for the renovation of society. Again, claiming culture for Christ. Who were the first um, delinquents in that regard? (laughs) The Puritans, it pains me to say. But we can look critically at our own history and and at our own forefathers. Here's a question. I'm not the first to ask this question. Does that make the Puritans the first social justice warriors? (laughs) Uh, I'm afraid it might. Many would say yes. In what way were they, um, if you don't mind me asking, social justice warriors? Because in my mind, when I think about Perkins, I think of laws that they enacted in their society regulating... That's it. That's the answer. Okay, so I guess then, to me, in modern times, I don't consider laws... Well, I guess they, yeah. No, they... they I, mean, I think of when the church being involved in social justice in modern times, I think of soup kitchens and, you know, running those kind of pregnancy centers, whatever. Um. A true social justice warrior today would would want to enact laws. They, okay. they want to punish you for disobedience, and they want to reward you for obedience okay. and, and, and require total conformity. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, to be fair, at, on a societal level, there's very little room left for the individual uh, in that framework. So, um, it's in that sense. It's not in the sense of a soup kitchen. It's more in the sense of the societal conformity uh, that is being sought. Uh, so, it's like uh, blue laws or things like that in the old period days. Yeah. Um Possibly, possibly, although I would be an advocate for blue laws, so, but don't ever accuse me of being a social justice warrior. So we're uh, we we need going to have to make some, some distinctions and categories. It's not as though we're saying in contending for liberty, we're saying all law is bad. So we, we do have to have some balance here. Uh, but uh, go, go ahead, John. Yeah, just, and uh, in, in, you may be getting toward this, but um, kind of, it, I think that, seems that there's a distinction between um, what the church is and does as an institution, what it's supposed to be doing, what its role is, and that's spiritual primarily, and then what Christians should do um, in their lives, you know, not in the regular, ordinary... But but even then, I agree with that distinction, but even then, you're still left with the question, what should Christians do? (laughs) Because even they, there's a limit to the scope of their work. Yeah, so that may be, you know, my question, where where do we draw that line right you know because the church seems like it definitely should there's there's limitations there's a function that it's fulfilling and if it goes outside it means well really let's busy, this is you know this could be its own study one day but i'm going to just provide the framework today so you're going to have more questions than you have answers after this class perhaps but we're really looking at the church side of things, okay? And I'm just kind of looking at historically, how did we end up in a situation with so many cultural warriors, left and right, okay? <laughs> Both sides. Um, so you, you don't combat progressivism by just a stronger form of conservatism. I, you, you Within the church, at any rate, you, you combat progressivism in the same way you combat uh, the, the the variety of conservatism I'm describing by 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 advocating for the role of the church as a spiritual institution. We're not cultural warriors, not as a church anyways, okay? And believe me, this is one of the ways where I have to mortify my own flesh because I have moments in my ministry where I want to cry out, (laughs) oh, people of God, will you not do this, given the cultural needs of the hour? Uh, and, And that's certainly fine within the context of iron sharpening iron, but not in the context of preaching. So I really and I love John MacArthur, but this is an area where he just doesn't have the same categories that I do. Um, so or or even Doug Wilson. So same sorts of things. So I love that they have the courage to speak out on these things, but they're really not constrained by the same constraints. I, I, I see some hand, I, see, I literally actually see three hands and Matt was the first, but then you, Lindsay, go ahead. And it's funny, um, just being a history buff, when I hear Puritan, I immediately go to Boston and think of Boston rather than than this learning in English. Yes. Um, And I know Boston was literally seen as the city on a hill. Mm -hmm. Um, But how does, you know, how do we deal with a verse like that that tells us we're to be a city on a hill? And then, you know, I I think the answer is in a spiritual sense. Yeah, and no doubt. the kingdom of God. But I, I think that they, yeah, that's kind of beautiful. Yeah, we want, to be, we want to be light to the world, but how do we be a light to the world? Peter answers that in 1 Peter 2. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read that, but it's by living blameless lives. Lindsay? progress and the culture around them take matters into their own hands. They're right. not content to be patient with God's change of heart, and so they want to build a society That's right. that looks like what God asks for. And this is what Luther if you... if they do it in ways. Even with the best right. intentions, it's like Peter wanting to build the tabernacle. This is what Luther says. Life. You can't change people's hearts by enacting laws, only by preaching the gospel. It's the only way you can do it. Uh, so... But, yeah, I. I It is, and it made me think of an example, Clyde. The prohibition. Who was behind that? It was Christians. Uh, So that's an example. An opponent of that was J. Gresham Machen. So, uh, Dave. Yeah, I was just thinking of James Kennedy, when or James, ahead of Knox theological, and he started Knox theological seminary. If you ever listen to his sermons, they constantly cross the line yeah another way to describe that is is also a confusion it's it's eschatology okay uh it's these people tend to be post-millennial they really want to transform culture in order to usher in the kingdom of god but an amillennial is going to say no that's never going to happen and it's never going to work um, we're, we're never going to reclaim culture for Christ. In fact, Peter says the whole thing is going to get burned up and basically thrown away, uh, and, and God's just going to start over. So, no, we're not going to bring the best things from this world into the next. I mean, that's very much the transformationalist outlook. Um, but, but the idea that we can basically bring in the glories of heaven, we can usher them into this life. but a a more modest view of this from the spirituality of the church is is going to say we are going to get a foretaste in worship and the whole of the Christian life is also a foretaste of that but that's as far as we'll ever get we'll just get a foretaste amongst believers Uh, and so you're you're not you're not going to make progress in the political sphere uh, in a Christian sense Uh, and, and read history and tell me if it ever worked I mean why did the Christians come here the worst thing that could ever happen, in fact, if you were a Protestant, was to be in a Christian nation. You were in the greatest danger in those situations. I mean, it was okay as long as your people were in power. Uh, but what happened when the Catholics took back over? Uh, all the prominent ministers were tortured and killed. I mean, it was a terrible situation. And so, as close as they got in the Reformation, it was a total failure in the end. And what happened? They fled to America to get to get away from the Christian nations. Uh, so, it, it just... It's almost like the closer you get, the more catastrophic the failure. Uh, I we're 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 not making a lot of progress here. I and I and I do want uh, I, I do want to make a little bit of progress. So I'm glad I am glad that uh, there this is generating some thought here. Um, but this, this what I'm trying to do is explain for my sake and for yours why, why you end up finding this. Uh, in the church so often. Uh, And sometimes, like I said, it's just because the man can't help himself. I mean... I uh, Again, I love a man like John MacArthur, but he is accountable to no one. And the guy can just stand up there and say whatever he wants. And sometimes he really crosses the line. Not in the sense that what he says is wrong, but why would a minister say these things? That's the point I'm making. And so I'm not a man like him. I, I, I have a lot of checks and constraints in my life, and that's probably for the best. Uh, sometimes I wish I could throw them off and have greater freedom, but... But uh, in reality, you, you, you might just be drawn into the excesses of the flesh. Uh, but sometimes there's a deeper theological conviction that is leading them to confuse the purpose of the church, which is to make disciples and then transforming culture. That's a totally different, a totally different idea. And I would even say church's organism is not supposed to transform culture, nor is it able to, nor has it ever done so. So there's an alternative to this, though, thankfully, that Daryl Hart, along with Machen himself, uh, realized that existed within uh, the reformed tradition. I hope we have time to finish this. I'm just going to set up the framework for you. Uh, And that is something that was found in 19th century Presbyterianism as an alternative to to the, the progressive push, let us call it. Uh, and again, you'll find this view articulated in the responsibility of the church in the New Age, which we have upstairs, and we can make as many copies of it as we need. Uh, you ask the question, like Machen, in the Great Depression, people are hungry. Should the church be feeding people? I mean, so many people would say, yes, that's what the church should be doing. Look what happened to the churches that started feeding people, how quickly they apostatized. It's a very, very sobering history. And you become thankful for men like Machen and Dabney, who had the foresight to say, you know what, this isn't going to end well if you go down this road. So 19th century Presbyterianism into the 20th century, you had men advocating for the spirituality of the church. The context of this was slavery and the Civil War. The prominent figures were Thornwell, Dabney, and Hodge. Thornwell and Dabney arguing against Hodge, and yet over slavery, and yet agreeing about this fundamental principle. That's the point I want you to see. Principle of uh, spirituality of the church. And so I'm actually going to mostly, along with Hart, provide Hodge quotations, even though Thornwell and Dabney are more famously known for being proponents of this doctrine. In fact, when people refer to Southern Presbyterianism, what they are talking about primarily is this doctrine spirituality of the church. Why has this doctrine gotten such a bad name in the twentieth and twenty first century? It's it's obvious. It's because it was seen as an excuse for slavery. Uh, and so people in wanting to distance themselves from slavery have distanced themselves from the doctrine. The reason that Dabney and Thornwell were, are, are advocating for this is because they were defending slavery. But Darrell does a great job of saying, well, here's a man who is not a friend of slavery, Charles Hodge, advocating for the very same things. And, and that, that, again, is the concept of the spirituality of the church. But again, I want to be clear why, historically, historians have not been favorable to this idea. It's 19th century Presbyterian idea and why, really, it has not won the day. So let us honestly face that. Uh, there, are, there are four prominent figures I want to look at. The first is Charles Hodge. Again, he was a northern Presbyterian, but he had to contend with, as did the southern churches, what was called the Spring Resolution, uh, made by, or the Spring Resolutions. I don't know the history of this very well. So, But Gardner Spring was a northern Presbyterian, He made a proposal uh, to the... I don't know the history exactly, whether the church had split at that point or whether it was only the Northern Church, but the proposal was basically this, and and I I know I've got this right, and this will clarify what what I'm talking about now. In the context of the Civil War, Gardner Spring made a resolution or proposal, I don't know, well, it was a resolution, I just said that, that members uh, of the Presbyterian Church, or was it ministers you see, I don't have the details down very well, but at any rate, I believe it was members, uh, had to swear allegiance to the federal government of the United States. Uh, and so Darrell said it would be equivalent to going to the Lord's table and pledging allegiance to the United States of America. What was he doing? He was confusing utterly the role of the church and the role of the state in a very obviously the most contentious time in our nation's history. Uh, So that's more or less what they were contending with. And that won the day, by the way. And I believe that's what led to the formation of the Southern Church. But I don't know if I have that history exactly right. I don't want to get bogged down in those details. The point is that resolution passed. And so you, if you were a member of the Confederacy, you were not just a traitor to to the Union, but you were considered a traitor to the Presbyterian Church in America. Do you understand why maybe even some Northern Presbyterians would say, I think you might have crossed the line. This is not something that we want to do. Are we really prepared to excommunicate the entirety of the Confederate Presbyterian Church? And the answer was yes, in effect. Now, Thornwell and Dabney were contending against this, but again, it's much more helpful to have a man like Charles Hodge, a northern Presbyterian, uh, an advocate against slavery, saying... You have crossed the line. He says this. The doctrine of our church on this subject is that the state has no authority in matters purely spiritual and that the church has no authority in matters purely secular or civil, that their provinces in some cases overlie each other is indeed true. So we're not going to say it's 100% separation, but let's say it's 99%. So we can sit here for an hour and debate the 1%, which is, I know what we want to do. <laughs> but let's just agree, 99%, they don't overlap. Uh, so that their provinces in some cases overlie each other is indeed true. Let's, let's be fair, going on with the quote. Nevertheless, the two institutions, church and state, are distinct and their respective duties are different. It is not the, the job of the church... In a time of civil war, to excommunicate its political opponents, and 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 that is something that you know it's it's obviously tempting. Uh, you can understand that. I mean, uh, in, in the in the intensity and the heat of the moment, but um, you know, as our our political climate climate becomes more polarized. You understand how these things begin to be the questions that Christians are asking. Hodge, Hodge goes on. The limits assigned to the power of the church courts. Okay, this is the General Assembly which adopted the spring, spring Resolutions. The limits assigned to the power of the church courts are all determined directly or indirectly by the word of God. Deriving all their authority from that source, they can rightly claim nothing but what is therein granted as they are church courts, they have nothing to do with matters of commerce, agriculture, or the fine arts, nor with the affairs of the state. They can only expound and apply the word of God. They may make orders uh, for the conduct of public worship in the administration of God's house, but they have nothing to do with secular affairs. uh, Thornwell, uh, agreeing with Hodge, says that the church has a fi- Thornwell the southern Presbyterian figure, has a fixed and unalterable constitution, and that constitution is the word of God. The power of the church accordingly is only ministerial and declarative. The Bible and the Bible of lo- alone is her rule of faith and practice. Okay, this is the reason, however, however strongly we may feel about politics in this church, and I promise you no one feels more strongly than I do, It's the reason we do not make pronouncements uh, that go beyond God's word. We don't hand out political tracts at the door. I mean, we get these things in the mail sometimes, the voter guides, and I put them right in the trash. Even if I agree with everything on the voter guide. Not for the church, keep it out of the church. Perhaps sometimes we go too far in this direction. Perhaps maybe we should have more prophetic voice at times. Uh, you, You think of a John the Baptist saying to Herod, it's not lawful what you did. Now, but even then, he was within, he wasn't making a political statement. He was making a moral one. Herod, you have sinned, and it cost him his head. So the church should certainly have a prophetic voice in that sense. Uh, And it was right for the church theologically to be wrestling over slavery. No one's debating that was the proper role of the church. But for the church to say that uh, you must swear allegiance to the federal government of the United States in a time of civil war, Is uh, Well, it'd be tantamount to, you know, let's say New York and Florida have fairly different outlooks and views and state governments and the Presbyterians in New York saying subscribe to our way of governing uh, or we don't consider you Presbyterians anymore. I mean, it was it was something like that or vice versa. They were articulating a great principle of the Reformation. I think we're going to finish. And again, I'm just giving you guys the framework. So I know you got, you're going to want to talk about that 1% in the middle, that nice little sliver, but we'll debate that to the end of our days. Uh, I'm going to grant that it exists, and I'm just not, I'm just not going to resolve it because I can't. Uh, but they were articulating the age-old doctrine of the sola scriptura, that scripture alone is the rule of, this, of the church. Uh, the rule, I mean, the standard you know, uh, the Roman Catholic ecclesiology, in case you don't know, is that who is the head of the state? It's the church. <laughs> and so they actually invert Erastianism. Erastianism says the state is the head of the church. But the Roman Catholic view is that the church is the head of the state. And so obviously in that setting, the church would have a lot to say about political affairs, but not not uh, according to the doctrine of the Reformation of Sola Scriptura. This is also articulated in... Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I don't have one here. I forgot to bring one, but let me grab a hymnal because I'll find it there. And, and, and Hodge appealed to this section on the civil magistrate. Or is it, um, let's see, chapter 31. I don't think that's civil magistrate. I think that is uh, church courts. Let's see. I don't remember. Chapter 31, synods and councils, section four. And this is of the church. Synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical. Okay, the church in pronouncing uh, political allegiance to the union and requiring that of her members was making a pronouncement that well went beyond that which is ecclesiastical. And are not, to go on with the quote, are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth, unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary, or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. So it is possible for the church to use a prophetic voice. It's, it's not going that far, saying that the church can't. The church might speak out and say this is a great societal evil christians shouldn't partake in it they should never support it and so on and the church might even petition the state uh archer our, our, our the opc has done that uh women in combat was an issue we petitioned the state i doubt any politician ever even bothered to read it it probably went straight into the trash uh but there are times when you know the church courts might make a humble petition a recommendation as it were uh and there have been other such things but uh but we are not to make pronouncements upon our members with regard to political members. I don't want a situation in which, to just put it starkly, people are excommunicated to the, from the church based upon party affiliation. But that's effectively where you end up. So in reality, as Darrell argues and as Hodge argues, this wasn't so much a 19th century Development as something that was already articulated in the Westminster Confession, and they were just bringing that idea uh, all the way through. The doctrine of the spirituality of the church then simply pointed to the church's spiritual nature and thus her spiritual authority. That's the key word: her spiritual authority. Does the church have the authority to excommunicate the Southern Democrats in the in those days? Did she have that authority? Did she have the power? Christ commissions the church with power. When you exercise the keys of the kingdom, there I am in the midst of you. Where two or three are gathered, there I am. He's talking about the church exercising the keys in Matthew 18. But does this church have that power? Has Christ commissioned her to that task? Daryl says the church has a spiritual power for spiritual ends. Again, the best treatment of this ever, in my opinion, is Luther on the two kingdoms. His treatment of the state is much weaker, in my opinion, uh, in that same treatise. But his, the first section on the church is pure gold. Another, uh, another doctrine that we're safeguarding in this is Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. We recognize that believers might be at odds on matters of politics. Matters of social ethics, certainly there. Do we say, I mean, I know this is what people say today. But do we say, you know, Dabney advocated for slavery and Hodge didn't. So Dabney probably wasn't a Christian. Or do we say that here were two Christians who differed on matters of social ethics. That's what I would say. And then we can decide who was right, who was wrong. But there's... (laughs) The, the totalitarianism of modern thought wishes to say, and this is the, the heart of the social justice warrior, as we were saying, everyone who is outlawed needs to be anathema. <laughs> the one who doesn't conform must be crushed. Uh, so, again, liberty of conscience and then vigorous debate. Let's have that vigorous debate about about slavery. And, and certainly that was had. Much blood was spilled in this country. We're still having that debate But let's not start excommunicating each other (laughs) over it, which is happening now. I mean, Machen has been canceled by the left. Dabney has been canceled. I mean, these are our historical forefathers, and we're willing to read them critically, but I'm not prepared to excommunicate them historically by canceling them. I'm much more interested to see how Hodge and uh, Dabney agreed, but also disagreed, and to consider how those developments bled through into the 20th and 21st century, Uh, But I can learn from both of those men. Uh, The last figure, and I I only have about four minutes to do this, is Stuart Robertson. I believe he was in Kentucky, if I don't have that mistaken, but I'm not sure. Uh, And and he was 19th century, but I I don't even know if he was part of this debate or if he came later, to be honest. But he wrote a book... um, which the OBC has since republished, and Daryl talks about his book here, uh, Stuart Robertson is um, the, the the church, an essential element of the gospel, I believe. And he has a very nice, simple way of uh, of differentiating the power of the state and the power of the church. And I'll write this on the board, and this will be the last thought. So, the state on one hand... And the church here. And again, this is your framework. Uh, I, I, I'm not no, I don't know that I'm prepared to answer all of your questions. Uh, but we can certainly talk about this more later. So uh, there's four points to be made here. The authority of the church. The rule or the standard. Uh, the scope of its authority. And then the symbol of its authority. So the authority of the church is derived from God. As creator over all men and thus is right and rule over all men but the authority of the church is Christ as Redeemer be careful that you don't say Christ as Redeemer is laying claim to men over here that uh, that will lead to some real messy social ethics I promise you um, the rule of the state is the light of nature or uh, a very unpopular term, but I'm very comfortable using it, natural law. The role of the church is the word of God. We can't go beyond that. Likewise, the state can't go beyond the light of nature. The scope, uh, I believe this is a quote straight out of Robertson, is "things, things seen or temporal. And the scope of the church uh, authority is things unseen or spiritual and then the symbol is the sword for the state and the keys of the kingdom for the church if you apply that framework to your questions I think you'll do better than 99% of Christians uh, even in history let alone our own day you will avoid the vast majority of errors and pitfalls that Christians have fallen in, and 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 the danger of that is that what ends up being compromised is not just the gospel in a more narrow sense, but the the whole mission of the church and the focus of the church. And uh, and I think many of you know that already from your experience in the broader church. Uh, but certainly, a study of history will bear out the same truth. So I think I think this is the framework. Uh, now again. Is there a little a little sliver, a little one percent where you say, "Well, wait a second you know what about what about this one issue doesn't it kind of fall in both realms i'm going to grant that we can we can debate those thorny and, and difficult issues to the end of our days you know a lot of times you know that's that 's where we need the charity <laughs> to say, uh, well, you know th- ethics are the most difficult issues, especially when they overlap both spheres but if if you have if you have this framework, I, I do believe you'll do well. So let's close with that. We've we've filled out the time. We need to head next door, so that's that.